It's the soft part. It's kind of nicer. It's like sheep, you know. Come on. <laughs> we need a collie or something like that. Some some sheep dog, that's right. So again, please let yourself come back in and take a seat. And Sean, if you would ring a bell out there, that would be great. So let yourself sit comfortably and at ease and allow yourself to listen, not so much to try to remember anything. Um, this is the dump, actually. This isn't the place to get things. It's the place to leave stuff so you're more open. Um, but if there's something that resonates in you as being true, if you take this as a kind of contemplative practice or meditation, then you can listen to see if it reminds you of something that you know in your own deepest understanding. And that's, um, that's really what's important, your own understanding. So last week, for those who were here, um, I talked some about the Buddhist teachings of karma not in a terribly complicated way because there's all these great big karmic kind of and uh, cosmological teachings that might or might not be so. They probably are actually a lot of them, but we'll find out anyway. But um, much more practical karma of how we're, the karma that we're making as we live. And then I said tonight I would do a complimentary teaching um, on redemption which is, of course, a theme that one finds not just in Buddhist teachings, but throughout the religious and spiritual teachings of, of every great culture. Buddhist texts um, begin with a greeting or a phrase that says, O nobly born, or you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, uh, remember who you really are. And this invitation is an invitation to listen in yourself to uh, the deepest wisdom that you carry because that's really what will serve you in living wisely in this human incarnation. The question is not the future of humanity but the presence of eternity, it's been said. How are we connected in this human life that we have to something that's vaster than just our bank account or our personality or our job or our family situation. There's something bigger going on. And the possibility of awakening to this mystery of life, of remembering the mystery and living beautifully in it is the invitation of the Buddha to live with beautifully or to live with a profound well-being and happiness. Um, I've been reading, I get all these books as galley proofs to blurb books. I, I don't know, I think I blur, do blurb book blurbs as a kind of avocation or something like that. <laughs> Hundreds of book blurbs, you know. Nobody trusts me anymore because I just <laughs> write my name on them rather promiscuously, but nevertheless. <laughs> and sometimes they're mercy blurbs, you know. Somebody that you love gives you a book and it's okay, but all right, I've got it. Anyway, <laughs> but... The, but but this book um, is uh, Ramdas's new book that's coming out, um, which is a kind of remake of Be Here Now, but in a more um, 
current form, the new edition, called Be Love Now. Um, I like it a lot. And in, and in its introduction, um, Larry Brilliant, who's an old friend and wonderful man, talks about being with uh, Neem Karoli Baba, with Maharaji, their, their teacher, Ramdas's teacher. He says, how do I explain who Maharaji was and how he did what he did? I don't have any explanation. Maybe it was his love of God. I can't explain who he was. I can almost begin to understand how he loved everybody. I mean, that was his job. He was a saint. Saints are supposed to love everybody. <laughs> but that's not what always staggered me. Not that he loved everybody, but that when I was sitting in front of him, I loved everybody. That was the hardest thing for me to understand, how he could so, so totally transform the spirit of people who were with him and bring out not just the best in us, but something that we didn't even know was in us. I don't think any of us were ever as good or pure or as loving in our whole lives as when we were there sitting in front of him. So the question of redemption really speaks to the seeds of awakening within us, of your own Buddha nature or your own true nature that was born in you as surely as you were born into this human incarnation. My teacher Ajahn Chah called it the one who knows. And the one who knows is conscience and wisdom and compassion, all of these things. Now, how this relates to the question of redemption is this. We tend in our culture, when things are difficult, we tend to project them on other people. We have the enemy du jour, you know, which was, it had been, you know, the Russians or the communists or whatever. Now it's the Muslims and there's this whole big thing about, oh, can we build a mosque somewhere or other as if freedom of religion wasn't something you know, that was part of what we were trying to do in this country. Um, but also it's not just Muslims, but it's, you know, different parts of the world. Pakistan becomes now partly the enemy du jour and so forth. And if it's not them, then maybe it's immigrants. That is insane. How many people in this room as family are not immigrants? <laughs> just raise your hand. I mean, there's a few natives and I'm, I, you know, and I bow to that. It's a beautiful thing. Who's, who have some background of the people who lived here, you know, for ten thousands of years before the Europeans came. But everybody else, there were two hands. Be sane about this. It's just crazy. But it's them, the immigrants. Um, but, or, or our prisons. Two, three million people locked behind bars. I mean, only, I don't know what it is, maybe Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan, a couple, not Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia and Iran, a couple of places that have, you know, that kind of compete with us for the percentage of prisoners. But we have more prisoners than anybody else in the world. And five, six, seven million people in the prison system. Um, I was in San Quentin talking to some guys there who were in a Dharma program and lifers. You meet these guys and, you know, maybe they're 40, 50 years old now, been in for 25 years and some guy would say to me, yeah, when I was 19 I was messed up on drugs and I made the worst mistake of my life. I did something really terrible. And then said, but um, that's not who I am anymore. And it's an amazing thing not only to have them say it, but to know that it's true. So what do we do? You know, here we live in a time with pretty much continuous warfare around the world, and the U.S. is one of the warlike nations if we look at our history and our current time. There's very little gaps between when we've been at war. Ecological destruction, continuing racism, and so forth. Um, and... Um, you know, whose fault is it? Where does it come from? This is from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian writer, and if I remember correctly, also a Nobel laureate. He writes, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people out there insidiously committing evil deeds, 
and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? Whether we put people in prison or we imagine them somehow different than ourselves, um, you know, and then we project that on them. Um, what would it mean to see with the eyes of wisdom, the great heart of compassion, the, all these conflicting, difficult energies of the world? Now, um, let's take it to a much more personal level. It's not just that there are dictators or unkind and cruel judges or, or unconscious judges and three strikes laws that, you know, you steal a pretty much a loaf of bread and get sent up for the rest of your life. It's true, you know, our prisons are bulging with people that did minor things later on, probation, okay, we lock you up forever. Um, but here's the question for you. Who is your inner dictator? Who is the inner fundamentalist in you? Who is the inner judge and jury? And for a lot of us, we judge ourselves so harshly they wouldn't even hire us to be a judge in a civilized country, you know? You'd have to go find EDMN somewhere and he'd say, yeah, I want you on my court, you know? I mean, that's how hard we are on ourselves. Who do we leave out in terms of immigration or whatever it is? What do we leave behind? Thich Nhat Hanh, and when I was speaking about karma last week, I remember a conversation with Thich Nhat Hanh 20 Five, thirty years ago, we were sitting over at Green Gulch on one of his first trips to America. And he was talking about karma. And somebody in the group raised their hand and said, would you say something about group karma? You know, how does karma happen to a group? For example, because it was not long after the war in Vietnam, how did it happen that the Vietnamese people had, you know, all these American soldiers and then bombers come and carpet bomb enormous parts of their country with millions and millions of tons of, of uh, bombs and Agent Orange and so forth. What was their <coughs> karma um, that made this happen to the Vietnamese? And he paused for a moment and then answered in a kind of remarkable way. He said, it didn't happen to the Vietnamese. It happened to all of us. And you start to see, as Martin Luther King talked about the single garment of destiny, that we really are woven together. This is the, the truth of this world. We breathe in and out w with col collaborative with the rainforests and the waters of the oceans and the clouds and the streams become our body and our blood. It's us. And it's not somebody else. So then, how do we deal with this question of redemption? I think of this woman who came to work with uh, my colleague and friend Tara Brock in the middle of a really messy divorce, and she'd made a lot of, um, had a lot of difficulties in her life and so forth, and she came home one day, she was supposed to have a special dinner for some people at work, and she walked into the, into the room and in the kitchen and there was all these dishes piled up in a big mess and half drunk, you know, Coke and beer cans and her teenage daughter, 17 or 18, was there with a bunch of friends had been partying and she exploded and shouted, how can you be so thoughtless and you knew I was coming back and all that, you know, and her daughter just broke into tears and ran into her room. This is a little teenage dialogue thing, you know. And um, <laughs> she sat there for a while just hearing her daughter's voice screaming back at her, you, your friend, you know, as she, as, she, as she had said to her, your friends, your music, that's all you care about, you don't care about you, me and your family and so forth. And she said, suddenly an image of her daughter as a toddler came to mind and she remembered how Celia used to pick bouquets of dandelions for her. And another image of 
Celia weaving spring flowers into each other's hairs and turning themselves hair and turning each each other into May queens. And she remembered that original innocence of her daughter and knocked on the door and said, I can't believe it, I can't believe that I've been yelling at you this way. I'm so sorry, you know. I'm so sorry for the pain in the family and the divorce and what's happening. And her daughter looked at her, she was really quiet, and she said, Mom, no one's perfect. I've always known you love me. Isn't that what counts? Isn't that what counts? So what is the possibility for the transformation of our own mistakes? Then we'll talk about other people's mistakes, or maybe both <laughs> together. Zen master Ryokan, the most beloved poet of Japan, he writes, uh, Morning begging round finished, I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddha shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. <laughs> you know? And it's in us. It's in us. And, and so we have to deal with this you know, life that we've been given um, and, the, and the mistakes that we make. I read this last week, I think, but I love it, from Florida Scott Maxwell, the author. She writes, no matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement, <laughs> right? And that's kind of, I mean, we can do that in meditation and our spiritual practice. We're going to make ourselves better, but we become the judge and the jury and all of, all of that. In Buddhist teaching, one of the fundamental grounds is the truth of impermanence. Or as Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, the goal of our meditation practice is always to keep our beginner's mind. To see that things are new each moment, that nothing can be repeated. Nothing can be repeated. And to be present for the mystery that's opening this moment, this day. And if we understand it, then eventually all that we encounter can be transformed. Because no matter what we've been through, and no matter what the difficulties and the, the things that might need forgiveness and redemption, the truth of impermanence means it's never too late and we can always start again. Always. Always, always. Because time is actually just an idea that we have. We live in the eternal present, and if you want time, you, why am I not go to vast timelessness? This moment, it's always possible to start again. And it's one of the most uh, refreshing and profound and, and um, inviting of the Buddhist teachings. The truth of impermanence, and that no matter what, it's never too late to start again. Now there's a, there's a famous story in the tradition of Theravada Buddhism of where Vipassana insight and mindfulness practice comes from of Burma and Thailand and India and so forth. And it's a kind of a myth from the tradition of the elders that if you think you've made mistakes or you're unworthy, which you may be to yourself but not necessarily to others, um, this puts it in perspective, which is I think why it is such a beloved story. Um, and it's the story of a man named Angulimala. It's a little bit like the Tibetan story of Milarepa, and I'll put the two together a bit tonight. Um, both of these are famous myths or stories about people who were murderers. In this case, Angulimala was a serial killer um, who was transformed. Anytime you're sitting in meditation, and not only was he transformed, he was enlightened. He had this in incredible transformation. Anytime you're sitting in meditation, say, you know, I don't know if I can do this, my own unworthiness, I'm not, I can't do this because I've done that and that and so forth, and think, you know, I'm not worth it. Think about Angulimala for, you know, you'll hear the story. I mean, however bad you are. And I actually remember the first time I was, you know, I've done 10,000 little teacher conferences with people talking about meditation and interviews and so forth. I remember the first time I had an interview with somebody who said they had killed somebody. And I kind of took a 
breath and said, okay, now what, what's, what's in the meditation teacher's manual for this one, right? <laughs> uh, and then, of course, the, the first question I ask is, well, have you stopped? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's really, you know, you kind of, let's get down to the basics. Here. All right. So Angulimala was a serial killer. And this is the story that, as it was told, um, he was born to a relatively uh, well-educated family um, under what is called a robber star. That is to say, his chart was not very good. Um, <laughs> and it also says something, if you listen mythologically, about temperament. He had a lot of power and a lot of charisma. Even as a young boy, people could see that, and maybe the astrologers. But he also had a tendency toward trouble. You know, as young men do. Anything dangerous to do around here? You know, that's the kind of question you get from young men. Um, so they brought him up carefully, because he had this astrological problem, so to speak. Um, and he had a spiritual interest as well. So they found a, a famous teacher, a guru, and he progressed because he was charismatic and powerful. He had his own kind of energy. And he became a favorite of this teacher. He was really a, a quite a fine student. But then what happened is that the other students became really jealous of Angulimala. You know about spiritual jealousy? Like other kinds of jealousy, right? It happens, it does. And so then they started to spread false stories about him and what he was doing to the guru's family and all these terrible things. And the teacher, not understanding, believed many of these stories. And at some point sent him off um, in a way to try to destroy him and said, if you want my teachings, you have to bring back a garland of a, a thousand human fingers. This is, it's gruesome, it's true, but on the other hand, um, turn on your television. You know, if you, or no, actually turn off your television would be a better instruction. But, um, you know, because there's all that stuff, unfortunately, in our video field. Um, and the thousand is really a mythological number, it just means a lot. Um, but if you want to really show, you know, your stuff, and this was again because the teacher had been turned to see him as dangerous to the teachings and to his family and community. And so he, as a teacher, somehow mirrored back that, that suffering and that ignorance. And, of course, you listen to this and say, well, this is ridiculous. But at the same time, it's not. Uh, if you think about it again symbolically, how many religions have sent people out to kill other people in the name of religion? You know, don't think this is a stupid story, you know? Just think crusades, you know? Or just think suicide bombers. Um, or just think, I mean, almost every religion there's, it's been misused, and in America we're, we're good at using things and we're good at misusing things, including religion and spirituality, but we're not the only ones around the world. So this really talks about, it says that the spiritual impulse um, can be used in beneficial ways, and it also can be used in destructive ways. And it asks for a kind of discrimination in our heart to say, is this destructive or is this... Is this beneficial? And in this case, it was about jealousy and revenge. And it's true in the story of Milarepa, this great Tibetan saint also, <coughs> whose family home and fields were stolen from him and his mother and his brother or sister, whatever it was, um, after their father died by some other family members. You know how families are at times. Um, and his mother wanted revenge. And she said, I want you to go and study the destructive arts and caused destruction upon, a pox upon that whole family. And Milarepa did that and killed a whole bunch of people. So this is really, you know, the ancient stories of suicide bombers or something like that. Um, and jealousy is a really tough emotion. And there's such a sense of impoverishment and fear and confusion underneath it and struggle that we have. Um, and spiritual conflict is so difficult. You know, we think we have the right way and somebody else is doing it differently. I even remember back my, my beloved colleagues and friends, um, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, with whom 
I began to teach for the first 10 years of my teaching from 1974 to 84 especially. We founded this beautiful center in Massachusetts. And when I came out here to California, we had some real um, conflict for a while. And partly our conflict was that at that time anyway, Joseph especially had become quite conservative in his approach to Buddhist teachings. And I became um, more liberal, if you will, and was adding in the things that I thought from the West were really helpful from that I learned in Western psychological understanding and so forth. And we were in conflict about what was the best thing for the long term. And, and we had, it was pretty tough for a while. We ended up, Ramdas ended up being a kind of intermediary and therapist for us. It helped, actually. Um, and it took a while to work that out. Then, uh, after a while, what happened and what I've learned in many years since it, is that I could take a position in the dance and say, no, these are the things that we've learned. We, we know that loving kindness and compassion are as important as any kind of traditional striving and effort to get enlightened. And, you know, the things that I thought were important. And Joseph said, no, 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 we have to practice in this way and you must do it fiercely or you won't get enlightened. And we're going, kind of going back and forth. <clears throat> now, if somebody were to ask me what's true about that, I would say, yes, all of it. You know, that in fact it's part of a mandala and that there was a piece of wisdom that I might have understood and carried and a piece that Joseph carried and that we actually need each other. You know, that the conservatives need the adapters and, and vice versa, that we're not separate, that we're part of some greater whole of teaching. But I didn't know that so well at the time and it took a while to let go of um, believing, you know, that little thing that I was right. <laughs> you know how that goes, don't you? <clears throat> but anyway, so here's Angulimala, <clears throat> and his teacher sends him out with this terrible task, <clears throat> and he became the most fearsome figure in all of that part of northern India. He became a bandit and a, and a killer, and he'd killed hundreds of people, and he was about to kind of complete his task. He was in the uh, in the Jolini forest, in this very dark um, wild wood full with wild animals, when the Buddha was nearby and heard about Angulimala, he'd heard about him for some time, and the Buddha said, I think I'll go talk to him. And everybody said, you are unarmed, don't do it, <laughs> do not go. But the Buddha said, you know, this is my job. Right? This is, we all have our jobs to do. This is my job. I'm going to go talk to him. And so he went unarmed and alone into the dark, deep forest of the Jolini, you know, woods. Um, and sure enough, uh, Angulimala heard somebody coming through the forest and started to run toward him. And Angulimala, among other things, was also supposed to be, have these great, it's kind of like those, um, uh, superhero things. He was able to run so fast, he said, I could catch a swift horse. That's how fast he could run. And he began to run after the Buddha with his sword, yelling, stop. And somehow by his magic powers, again, these are mythological tales, the Buddha walked very, very slowly like Thich Nhat Hanh, <laughs> And Angulimala couldn't catch him. He kept running and running. He could never catch up to him. And he said, stop, stop, monk. And the Buddha said, I have stopped. I've stopped harming any living being, Angulimala. Isn't it time for you to stop? So Angulimala stopped. And in one version, the Buddha said, now you have that sword in your hand. Cut a limb off of that tree. And so he took his sword and whacked a limb off the tree. And then the Buddha looked at him and said, now put it back. And Angulimala said, I can't do that. And he said, oh, your power is so limited. It can only take life. What about the power to bring life, to care for life? So somehow at this moment, what the Buddha touched in Angulimala in this story was his inner nobility, the same inner nobility that is carried in every single one of you tonight. The nobility of Angulimala arose and he said, I have seen true fearlessness. I've seen true greatness in seeing the Buddha. And he threw his weapons into a pit and bowed at the Buddha's feet and asked to be his follower. 
And the Buddha said, um, and asked for forgiveness. And the Buddha said, I offer you forgiveness and now come and be a monk with me and I will instruct you. And like Milarepa, Angulimala had this tremendous regret. Um, Milarepa, whose mother had asked him to go and revenge what happened to the family, which he did and killed all these people. Um, after that, he tried to sit in meditation. He'd had this meditation teacher who taught him these destructive arts. And he said, I made so much suffering that I was filled with remorse for the crimes I had done and obsessed by the harm I'd done to others. Um, and this is the part of us that we could call conscience, if you will. Um, it's why virtue isn't taught as the commandments in meditation and Buddhist practice. It's simply taught as the basis for human happiness because it's hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work very well, you know. So there he was sitting, you know, on Milarepa. I was filled with remorse for the crimes I had done and obsessed with the harm I had caused. And so he too, like Angulimala, went in search of, Angulimala didn't come in search, the Buddha found him, but Milarepa went in search of a teacher and really in search of redemption because that's what he most wanted. He felt the catastrophe of what he had done and he wanted this redemption. This from Albert Camus who writes, we all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes, our ravages. Our task is not to unleash them on the world. It is to transform them in ourselves, in our own hearts, and therefore transform them in others. And so slowly Angulimala trained and made his way back across India over some weeks and became uh, quiet, did all this deep practice of uh, forgiveness and compassion and loving kindness, and became a somewhat modest monk following the Buddha. And one day, not long after that, the Buddha saw coming along the road the war chariots of King Pasanadi, who was one of the local kings and an acquaintance of the Buddha at that time. The war chariots and armed soldiers and the Buddha said, where are you going to King Pasanadi? And he said, I'm going to go and track down the evil one, this great bandit Angulimala who's been killing people in the forests of North India. And the Buddha listened to him and said, suppose someone like Angulimala could be transformed, could become virtuous and wise. And the king listened and shook his head and said, that seems impossible, but should it happen, I would bow to him. And the Buddha said, uh, come to the forest glade where I'm teaching this evening and I will tell you about this. That was all he said. So that evening in the dusk, King Pasanadi came with his followers, took off their shoes and walked through the glade and there were the monks sitting quietly. And he came and paid his respects to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, oh great king, over there just nearby sits Angulimala. And the king grew alarmed and fearful and his hair stood on end. You know, these <laughs> stories are, that's how they tell them. And the Buddha said, fear not. Fear not is the thing that they always, the angels always say when they come in the Old Testament, you know, because it's like, wow, an angel, hold on. Say, so fear not, it's okay, chill out, it'll be all right. I'm just an angel. So the Buddha said, don't be afraid, fear not. And told the story of going into the forest and encountering Angulimala, of having him cut off the tree limb and saying you only have this small power of taking life but not the, not the great power of, of preserving and giving life. And how Angulimala's nobility had arose. And the king marveled and bowed at the possibility of the transformation that happened to this one man um, and to anyone. So later, as Angulimala went out with his bowl for alms to get food, he was scorned. He didn't get much food. <laughs> In fact, on alms with the... Uh, he, even when he went out with the Buddha, they'd give the food to the Buddha, they wouldn't give it to Angulimala. One day when Angulimala was out, he was passing a home. I think he was on alms round with the Buddha. Um, and there were cries from inside, and it was a woman who was in labor 
with her child, but having a really difficult labor. And Angulimala's compassion went out to her, hearing these cries and screams. And the Buddha said, help her. And Angulimala said, I'm a monk, how can I help her? And the Buddha said to him, make this prayer. Since my birth, I have not harmed a single being. And by the virtue, uh, by the power of this virtue, may she be healed and may the birth go well. And Angulimala looked at the Buddha like, are you crazy? What do you mean? And the Buddha said, well, then change the vow. Since my birth as a monk, since my birth into this noble life, I have not harmed a single being. And by this truth, may you and your child be safe. And so he uttered those words, and immediately the cries and the screams damped down, and she had a, a fine birth. Which says something about what wants to get born in us, really and what it takes to touch that which needs to be born anew in us in some very deep way, how we have to touch it. Um, and gradually Angulimala practiced until he became fully enlightened, as the story tells. And he would go out on his alms round with his bowl, and still regularly people would throw stones at him and beat him with sticks and stones. And he would go back, sometimes scarred or bloody, and the Buddha would say, now your karma comes to fruit. Angulimala, bear it, noble one, bear it with wisdom and compassion. And since that time, women in labor, um, there's this beautiful kind of drawing that you can have and prayer from Angulimala, and he's the, he's the saint, if you will, that people pray to, um, which is really the symbol of going through the hardest possible thing and knowing that there's a possibility of new birth. Because Angulimala is the, the symbol of this new birth that will assist your new birth. And Angulimala became a healer. If you read Rilke's amazing poetry of the sonnets to Orpheus, and then you read, um, you know, uh, Orpheus going to the underworld um, to play his lyre and bring back his beloved um, unsuccessfully, as we know. Um, this part of the poem, he says, Erect no gravestone to his memory. Just let the rose blossom each year for his sake. For the rose is Orpheus, and wherever he has passed through this or that, we do not need to look for other names. When there is poetry, it is Orpheus singing. And what this means somehow is when you take a descent, and everybody in this room has had your descent, and you will have others, <laughs> probably. Um, those descents, the places where you are lost and broken and wounded, become also the places of your healing. They become the places of the real compassion that grows in you, of the sympathy for the humanity of everybody else, where you can't say, they're different than I am, like Solzhenitsyn said, the, the line dividing good and evil, you know, of, of those who cause suffering and those who receive suffering. It's a part of our human incarnation. And your descent, in some way, opens you to this truth. And what the story says is that wisdom, forgiveness, the training of the heart, can triumph over temperament, no matter how, what, how cranky you were when you were born, right? Or what robber star you were born over, under. It, it can triumph over the conditioning of your family, no matter how terrible your childhood. Many of us had pretty tough childhood. But it's not who you are. That's called the body of fear, the small sense of self. That your habit and your small identity can be released can be transformed. And it's partly what meditation allows us to do. Yes, you sit and quiet the mind and stuff that's held in your body gets released and emotions get felt and understood and recognized and all the stories get heard and then you realize, well, the stories are just stories. As Muriel Ruckheiser wrote, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. So you see all the stories, but they're not the end of the story. They're just stories going through. And then there comes to 
a place of resting in the present, in the reality of the present, in awareness. And you begin to realize that wherever you've been caught, um, it's not about fixing yourself, but it's about this deeper transformation that can open to love wherever you are, that can open to freedom wherever you are. And so here this story describes the terrible fruits of and misguided religious clinging, you know, all the ways that we talked about, which goes to the crusades and ethnic cleansing and fundamentalists and every tradition. Um, but it's not just every tradition. It's in divorce and it's in, you know, fighting over the will and it's she did and he did and um, it's in some of your workplaces. And this is the words of the Buddha. He says, Look how he abused me, he beat me, threw me down and robbed me. Perpetuate such thoughts and you live in hate. Look how he abused me. This isn't like a small thing. Beat me, threw me down, robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And so again, this is the instructions really yes you've suffered yes you've been betrayed or yes you've betrayed yourself in some way you can either live in the belief that that's who you are and who others are or you can accept the remarkable and true reality the possibility that that can be released that you can start again and I think of my teacher, Nisargadot, who said, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. We have all these stories in the mind of who did what to us and so forth. Um, or all the stories that go back to Islam. You know, if you read the, the Quran, there are ten times as many verses about the mercy of Allah than there are about God's wrath. If you want to talk about percentages, it's actually a lot better in the Quran than it is in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And that God was really tough in the Old Testament, I'll tell you. <laughs> but what's important to remember for you is that you can start again, that you can be, if Milarepa and Angulimala can find redemption, so can you. So can Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years of Robben Island prison and Aung San Suu Kyi who's still under house arrest. And there is a nobility that is called upon in you if you want to live beautifully in this world. And to meditate is to become quiet enough to remember this, this great heart of a Buddha that's within you and not the small sense of self. So some years ago, we started at Spirit Rock the Insight Prison Project, which now is sort of running it beautifully in its own many programs in San Quentin and elsewhere. Jacques Verdun, um, the director. And one part of the prison project is the work of um, reconciliation uh, or what's called restorative justice, where victim and offenders come together. And uh, Jacques tells me this story about a woman, I'll call her Rita, whose son was killed in a kind of street gunfight, even though he was just a young guy who was walking by, 21 years old, killed, shot, and dead. Um, and she mourned, as you would, terribly as a mother for a long time. Um, and then one day, because she got interested in She'd been in court and all these, you know, all the things that happened after the murder. And they wouldn't even give her her son's body right away, you know, because the coroner was there and then the police were there. And he, it's, it's a terrible thing to not even have your child's body. So she went through all the agony that you could imagine and became very interested in gangs and shootings and criminal justice and whatever. And she was at a dinner with Jacques some years ago. Um, and asked him what he did, and he talked about the training programs in San Quentin for these guys. And um, 
went and uh, she said to him, well, can I come and see? So he brought her inside to meet with a bunch of the lifers that have been going through these Dharma training programs now for some years. Um, and she told them her story. And they wept. These were people who had really been doing their inner work because they took their time. They take their time in prison as a, as a temple, as an ashram, the prison ashram project. You know, you can get worse in prison or you can, like Nelson Mandela, find some redemption. And she told them that she'd made a quilt after her son died and sewed um, 21 squares for each of the 21 years of her boy's life with some picture or some saying that represented something beautiful about her son's life. And somehow she connected with these men. Maybe she needed it, you know, in needing redemption. We also have to make a reconnection like South Africans Truth and Reconciliation Commission or this project I talked about last week that my daughter was involved with in, a, in Cambodia, the book Eyes on Darkness, the, the redemption around the war crimes tribunal um, that's necessary. Somehow she knew this for herself. And after going in a number of times and meeting these guys, they realized that coming up in uh, December was the death anniversary of, their, of her son. And so they were trying to think what to do for her, and they decided to make a quilt. And it's not easy to get cloth in prison, so they took off like the pocket of their favorite shirt, you know, or cloth from their bed sheet, or the best that they could find. And 21 men, they each sewed a square for her with something that they had learned in it and asked that she come in on that day and offered her this quilt, which of course she wept and then she took home and put it up next to the quilt of her son that she had made. And then in the next year, the next season, she actually went in and got permission to bring them a Thanksgiving dinner the turkey and the trimmings and things like that. And the grave, and Jacques said it was in the basement in this room they set up just past the urinals. It's not nice, I'm telling you, prison. But they set up a table. She had the few people that came in there all dressed up. They never see anybody dressed up. And knowing it would take a long time to get through the, you know, all the guards and all the ways to get in and so forth, she put the gravy in the in these thermoses so that even though the food was cold, she could open it up and there was warm gravy, which is love. There's a kind of trance that we get into of who's right and who's wrong, when we've all been wrong in some way or other, and all been right, of separateness and fear. And the possibility of redemption means that we listen not with our mind or our ideas, but it's somehow an appeal to the heart to listen. What we most deeply long for, which is freedom, liberation of the heart. And redemption, like forgiveness, means somehow releasing that which has bound us. The ways that we've believed our own shame and our unworthiness and the things that we've done wrong. Whatever you've done, Angulimala beat you, you know, and Milarepa. It's true. And so you're invited to be redeemed. You're invited to forgive yourself. You're invited to be born anew in the Dharma. And so you get quiet when you meditate and you listen, not just with the mind, but somehow with the heart. See, this is passage from William Butler Yeats, if I can find it. (coughs) 
we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. That if we get still and can see and listen with the heart and see with clarity, even the things that seem unredeemable, that seem terrible. And I don't mean that we don't set boundaries and that we don't have laws or that we don't have, you know, certain psychopaths who need to be in prison, although some of them also seem to be in the government of certain countries of this world, <laughs> not just here, but worldwide, you know. It's not, prison isn't the only place you find such people. It's true. Um, I don't mean a naivete about that. Um, but what does it mean to live with a transformed heart? To transform the measure of suffering that you've been given. And even though Angulimala went out and was stoned and had to face the consequences, the terrible pain that he'd caused and the consequences, somehow he transformed that sorrow. The Sufis say, overcome all bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world, each of you is a part of her heart and therefore each is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are called upon to meet it in compassion instead of self-pity. So you have your measure of sorrow and your measure of pain. And what do you do with it? You know, the Buddha said to Angulimala, um, O noble one, bear the pain. And don't place it on another. Transform it with your, with your compassion. A woman in great distress over the death of her child came to the guru for comfort. He listened to her patiently while she poured out her tales of woe. And then he said softly, I cannot wipe away your tears. I can only teach you how to make them holy. And there is some sense in meditation and in the true tradition of liberation um, that the, the difficulties and the sufferings that we have also become a gateway to that which is holy. And when I talked to Jacques about restorative justice, he said, you know, I've been to India and I've been to all these great temples and I've been on retreats. And I, he said, and I've never seen anything as beautiful as the moment where a victim and perpetrator meet together and there's forgiveness. He said, it's, the, it's a kind of remarkable thing to be in San Quentin and see the most sacred thing you've ever seen in your life. Redemption starting a new beginner's mind. This is a reality that we will all face, a question that we'll face in marriage or partnership, love relationship, in business, in your families or neighborhood, in the things that you want to serve, in the society at large. These questions come again and again. Can we forgive? Is the redemption possible? And especially for yourself. Can you forgive, you know, the shame you carry, the guilt you carry? Doesn't help really. Kind of a, I mean, remorse or recognition of what was wrong is always useful. But then to carry it as shame or guilt, at least in Buddhist psychology, that's considered, technically speaking, a waste of energy. <laughs> I mean, it's just obsessive thoughts about some old identity. It's about time to start again. And I remember when I was traveling a couple of years ago in Palestine and Israel, meeting with these remarkable groups, the bereaved mothers or the former combatants for peace on both sides, Palestinian and Israelis who'd been soldiers. And then at some point said, I just can't do it anymore. I simply can't do it anymore. Even though they may have shot and killed people, they were, they'd become best friends. We're not going to do this anymore. We simply will not. So what are your sufferings and your mistakes? 
and what do they ask of you in terms of redemption? Can you bear them? Can you transform them in some way into compassion for yourself and others? Can they become the medicine to inspire you to heal the world? It's like these vets that I know who come back from who've come back from Iraq and ex-Marines who are in Ramadi and Fallujah who are now working with gang kids because they know violence and guns and they really, they're inspirations to these kids. Um, and they're using the trauma that they carry, which won't go, the trauma, you release it, it's, you don't forget it, you, but you can carry it either as a wound or you can also carry that wound as a beacon, as some light that shines through the suffering and says that will bring this to the world in a different way. They're like Angulimala, since my noble birth, I have not harmed a single being. By the truth of this, may you be safe. And when those guys come back, you know, and can say that, even though they were in terrible situations, and probably, as they said, it's not only, I can't tell you what I saw, but I can't tell you what I did, that they redeem themselves and the young man that they work with. Or the lifers who've come out of San Quentin now who met with the Oakland police chief, a, a number of them, to say, we want to work with the kids so they don't end up where we were. Thich Nhat Hanh. Being able to, and being awake to the kinds of suffering we encounter in our lives, the great suffering he encountered, can heal us of some of the suffering ex we experience when our lives are not very meaningful. When you confront the kinds of difficulties we faced, for example, during the war or with refugees, you find that you can be a source of compassion and help to many other people. And in the intense suffering, you feel a kind of joy, a relief within yourself, because you know that finally you've become an instrument of compassion. The Dhammapada begins with this verse, who is the enemy? Mind is the enemy. No one can harm you worse than your own mind unguarded, misunderstood, ignorance, delusion, fundamentalism, the belief in the small sense of self. And who is your friend? Mind is your friend. The mind and heart that's open, quiet, wise, well understood. No one can help you as much not even the most beloved friend or family member. And this is the Buddhist teachings of emptiness, that all is mind made, all arises from mind. And because this is true, conditions change. Because this is that is. Things are not fixed, they are impermanent. This is the mystery of consciousness. We tend to get in this box and think it's permanent and the world's the way it is and we're the way it is. It isn't. And things can be transformed because consciousness itself can be transformed. I love Nelson Mandela saying that um, he loved to see the good in, the good in other people. Thinking too well of other people often inspires them to... Um, act better than they otherwise would. <laughs> Followers of the way, that's you. The most important teaching from the evening, the world, and from these texts, the world is full of second chances. And in our life, redemption is always possible for every single being. Sometimes it's in tiny ways. Remember Julia Childs says, if you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can just pick it up, who's gonna know, right? <laughs> it's kind of the small forms of redemption. <laughs> but it's also Congresswoman Eleanor, Eleanor Holmes Norton, African-American Congresswoman, who voted for George Wallace 
because he changed from being an incredibly hateful, you know, hate-filled racist um, to actually being somebody, he, he changed himself to being actually somebody who was interested in the well-being of everybody. And so she voted for him. That's an amazing thing that she could do that. So you can go back to your lover, you know, or your family member or the part of yourself that you've exiled, you know that, or back to your breath or whatever it is, um, and say, or back to work, that place of conflict in work, um, or back to your activism in the world to make the world a juster or more beautiful place because you love it. Um, and say, we can start again. We can start anew. It's never too late to let go. If you couldn't let go, that would really be a problem for you. That would be a problem. But just because you can let go, because the heart can be free, so there is the teachings of the Dharma, the teachings of enlightenment and liberation, because you can let go and start anew. I remember a a woman who went to see Sasaki Roshi, this great Zen master, and she was worried because in her meditation she started to feel that her old self was dying and she didn't know who she was and she got very confused and, you know, my family and my, you know, my partner and all these things and it feels like things are falling away and then dying and what do I do? And that's a phase in meditation that one goes through as you learn to let go. And Sasaki looks at her and he said, death, okay. Resurrection, okay, too, you know. And that's so for you, and it's so for us. Even now, we can stop and breathe and listen to the one who knows, to the wisdom heart. Oh, nobly born, you can plant new seeds. You can nurture what's beautiful. You can start anew. And as Henry David Thoreau says, Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. And it's the literal seed. I mean, it's an amazing thing, an acorn or a tiny little seed. And out of it comes this incredible being, this incredible plant. But we have the same seeds in consciousness. And the seeds of redemption, of compassion, of forgiveness can be planted at any time and they will grow. It's so mysterious. Consciousness is like an ocean, a river, a waterfall, and we're constantly renewing it. You've heard of neuroplasticity, even to the very end of life. You're remaking your nervous system, which is only one little part of your consciousness. But, you know, the neuroscientists, it's nice to have some of that kind of affirm from modern science, even though it's beautiful, even though it's somewhat limited, because they have no idea what consciousness is. You talk to them, consciousness? Don't know. Good. Thank you. But, but even in the nervous system part, which is not who you are, but you have a body, you rent it, you use it for a while, you might as well work with it, it gets transformed. Neuroplasticity, if you're 85 years old and you take up the violin and practice assiduously, after a few years of practicing, and they put you in a a scanner, an fMRI or an MRI, they see that the part of your nervous system and the brain that maps to your fingers on the violin's, you know, board there, fretboard, whatever it's called, um, has grown thicker and bigger, lots of neurons, because you practiced. The seeds that you plant transform your body, but more than that, they transform your soul or your spirit. It's so mysterious, but this is how it works. It's why emptiness works, because you can plant new seeds every season, every moment. If you bring a lamp into a dark place, it does not matter if it's been dark for a day or a thousand years, it will be illuminated. This from the Buddha. So just sit quietly for a moment, a little reflection. When you remember redemption, when you remember forgiveness for yourself and starting anew, 
sometime when you've done that, what did your body feel like? You remember. And then when you reflect and remember a time when you give up, I can't do it, it's too hard, I can't forgive, I can't let go, I can't forgive myself. What did your body feel like then? Now go back to the first. Remember what it feels like when you remember you can start anew no matter what. Remember what it feels like when you sit with your dignity and nobility, the beauty of your heart, like no, the nobility of Nelson Mandela and Aung San Suu Kyi and everyone who's awakened. And as the poet Rumi says, something like this, you know, voyagers all, ours is not a caravan of despair. Though you have broken your vows a hundred times, come, come, become a citizen of love. You want to be a citizen somewhere. Be a citizen of love. And trust this in yourself. And let yourself carry the spirit of compassion for yourself more than any, and redemption as you uh, wander the earth this week. Bipeds that we are, you know, have an interesting time. Thank you for coming. And remember tonight, those who, who are holding the baskets so kindly, um, that every dollar that you give will go to Doctors Without Borders, which does fantastic work giving water and medicine to people who don't have it in Pakistan. <coughs> two people need a ride <coughs> to San Francisco. Is there anyone who can give a ride to two people? Would you meet them up here and Moon come up here as well? And thank you all. Blessings. Be safe. Come again if you like. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.